Why was the cross necessary? What does it mean for us? What does it have to do with us? That's what we're going to look at this morning briefly, and I want to encourage you to open your Bibles as we do so to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking to the front here. They're going to walk towards the back. You can just raise your hand in the air. We would love to get a Bible across to you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take this one home with you today. This is our gift to you. It's a joy for us to give you a copy of God's Word, and it's a joy for us to be reminded this morning from God's Word about the cross. You know, Good Friday is a unique day on the Christian calendar. It's a day set aside specifically to remember, to reflect upon, and to meditate upon the cross of Jesus Christ. It is an anniversary date of the day that the man Christ Jesus hung on a piece of wood for the sins of the world. And this service this morning is arranged very carefully to help us reflect upon the death of Jesus. It's a different service than our typical Sunday service. It's a very different feel of a service than what we will be experiencing and celebrating even a couple of days from now on Easter Sunday, but it is intentionally this way. There is a soberness to this day. This is the day, after all, our Savior died for us in our place. And it wasn't just any death. It was a death by crucifixion. It was the most horrendous, the most shameful, the most despicable and humiliating death a human being could suffer. Everything in this service has been designed to cause us to reflect deeply about Jesus, and I trust that our hearts would be stirred with a sense of soberness, a somberness in one sense. But I pray too that our hearts would be awakened and refreshed by the reality of what the cross means for us this morning. The video we just saw is a sobering reminder for our hearts this morning of why the cross is necessary. It's because of who we once were, or in some cases, maybe this morning, it's because of who you are right now. Every one of us has an I once was statement, or a currently I am statement. A statement that speaks to why the cross was necessary for us. And it's important this morning that you reflect on that. It's important that you think about who you were if you're a Christian this morning before Christ. And if you're not a Christian this morning, it's important that you understand and think about who you are apart from Christ. That I once was statement reminds us that the cross of Jesus Christ is not some vague, disconnected, historical event that has no bearing on our lives. It reminds us that the cross of Jesus Christ is deeply personal, it is profoundly intimate, and it is radically life-changing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians reminding them of the life changing reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want to refresh your hearts and minds this morning by looking at God's word. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just a few verses, verses 9 through 11. Let's read them together. It says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the the hinge of this entire section. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This morning, I want to look specifically at verse 9 and 10 and just that first phrase, and such were some of you in verse 11. And on Easter Sunday, we're going to look more closely at the last half of verse 11 and celebrate that together. But these first few verses really remind us why the cross is necessary. And in a more broad sense, you need to think about the specific reality in your life and the specific implications of the gospel. But I want you to think broadly about why the cross is necessary, not only for you, but for every single human being on the face of this earth. The cross was necessary first because I once was dominated by the power of sin. I once was dominated by the power of sin. In other words, I was under sin's dominion. It had rule over my life. That's what Paul is reminding the church in Corinth of in his letter. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, they are a messed up bunch of Christians. The church is so confused, it's filled with sin. Up to this point, Paul has sought to set them straight on a number of different issues. Sin is certainly still present among them, and as Paul looks at them, he reminds them, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Some of these believers are truly saved. They're just continuing continuing to live as if they're not saved. Some of them think they're saved, but they're really not, and so they're living like the unbelievers that they truly are, where sin rules them. The evidence of Sin's power and dominion over us appears or is, or is shown in our lives through our behavior. Our behavior demonstrates what rules us just like it did them. And Paul is going to go after some specific things that demonstrate sin's power is still very present and real in their lives. Sin's power, listen, is a statement of dominion and authority. Paul says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, those whose lives are characterized by sin. And sin, really, if you break it down to its most fundamental level, is a disobedience and rebellion against God. It's a rejection of God as ruler over your life. Sin, however, is a tyrannical taskmaster. It is a punishing power. It is a destructive dictator. Sin is not so much an accumulation of misdeeds like we often think it is, but a power with a death grip on the whole human race. We are under its rule, its authority. We are helplessly held by its power. And as such, those who are unrighteous under the power of sin will not, Paul says, inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, we won't acquire or take possession of the future kingdom that awaits those who are saved by the grace of God. That kingdom will be defined, listen, not by the power of sin, but by the power of God. 
It will not be defined by the rule or dominion of sin. It will be defined by the rule and dominion of God Almighty where everything will be subject to his power. Everything will lovingly, willingly, cheerfully submit and surrender to the power of God. That is what the kingdom of God will be defined by. To understand this future kingdom of God, we need to look back for a moment. The kingdom of God is less of a place and more of a power. It is characterized by the right and good authority and rule, dominion and power of God. We need to go all the way back to the beginning to get a sense of what this may have looked like. The Garden of Eden where God put humanity. That is the first kingdom of God. That is where there was no sin. That is where humanity obeyed every word of God who followed the very will of God. It was all before the power of sin entered in to take control over humanity. Under God's power in the garden, humanity knew and lived out his perfect purposes. They enjoyed the ongoing presence of God and they celebrated the unmatched preeminence of God. Sin enters, and as John Milton famously wrote, paradise was lost. The kingdom of God was lost. Now a world and an existence cursed by sin has taken over. The power of sin infiltrates every part of our lives, and here is why the cross is so vitally necessary, because God, through the cross, is taking back what is his. Every square inch of the universe will be reclaimed by God, and the awesome news of the cross is that God has chosen to start first and foremost with you and me. He starts by reclaiming people, life by life soul by soul, person by person, he is calling people into his kingdom under his rule and authority who will then in the future inherit a physical kingdom. And such were some of you. That's the statement Paul makes. But what is true of you now does not have to dominate you forever. That's the hope of the gospel. The power of sin must be broken. The cross is God's divine weapon to destroy sin's dominion over us. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, he says this, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law, listen, the law continually shows us the power sin has over us. Every time we look at God's perfect standards and we fall short of God's perfect standards, we fail to obey perfectly, we're reminded again and again of the power that sin has over us and the desperate need all of humanity has for that power to be radically broken, to be done away with, to be trampled, and God sent his son Jesus Christ to do exactly that. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus creates a power shift. We are set free from the power of sin to submit to the power of God. We can experience the kingdom of God here and now in the spiritual sense. But listen, here's, here's the reality that we need to grapple with today. Only those who submit to the rule of God now will inherit and enjoy the rule of God forever. 
The cross is necessary because I was once dominated by the power of sin. Second, the cross was necessary because I was once defined by the perversion of sin. Paul goes on to give a list of very specific sins. And again, if we were to go through the book of 1 Corinthians, you can see how these are the sins that are so specific to the struggles of the Corinthian church. But I find it fascinating that wherever you find a list of sins, we can very quickly draw a parallel to our own culture, maybe even to our own lives. Paul says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list of sins. It's not meant to list every category of sins. It's supposed to be specific. It's supposed to hit the hearts of the Corinthians. The power of sin is seen in the multifaceted perversion of sinful behavior. Most of the sins on this list are obvious moral perversions. Sadly, to much of our culture, they are mainstream and they are seen less as a perversion and more as just normative human behavior. But the Bible calls us back to the way God designed us, to what he created to be right and true and good. And while these are common to humanity, they are a distortion. They are a perversion of God's original design and intent. Every last one of these reflect fallen, sinful humanity, which, by the way, is every single one of us apart from Jesus Christ. There is no sense in which we can look at this and say that somehow these sins are worse than others. The word of God would have us look at our own hearts and see that our hearts have been characterized by sin, have been perverted and defined by sinful behavior. You know, it's interesting. I wonder if you watched that video at the beginning and maybe in your heart and mind you, you said, I could never do that. Oh, that's, that's so embarrassing. That's so humiliating to, to come out and say, this is what I struggled with. This is, this is the sin that gripped my heart. And maybe you ask, how is it that somebody could do that? I could never do that. The reality is, is that we can do that if we're in Jesus Christ because those are the things by the grace of God that no longer define who we are. We are defined by the cross of Jesus Christ and by the relationship that is established with God for us. Our identity is not rooted in who we once were. That's part of what Paul wants to show the church. This is not who you are. This doesn't have to define you as an individual. Your identity, listen, is ultimately defined by what you worship. You are what you worship. You will become what you worship. What you most cherish, what you most value will begin to shape you and begin to define your life. And what you worship is ultimately seen in the various expressions of your sinful behavior. That thing that you love most, that you worship most, will begin to change your behavior in specific ways. So, for example, if I worship pleasure, then sexual immorality will be probably a reality in my life. Paul draws this out, the sexually immoral, here the word specifically means a sex before marriage. If I worship pleasure, then adultery becomes a very real reality, maybe if not indeed in thought. Other expressions of sexuality that oppose God's design and purposes, homosexuality, 
If I worship possessions, listen, then I'm willing to potentially steal, to be ruled by greed, covetousness, to abuse others and slander them, that's the revilers, to use people toward my own ends. Ultimately, I become the thing I worship most. The point is that I will not be defined by what God wants, listen, but, what, by, but by what I want. The perversion of sin defines us. We are all fundamentally sinners who refuse to worship God. And as such, the Bible tells us, Paul himself tells us that we are alienated from God. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 2, verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the condition of humanity because of their sin alienated from God, not having a hope in the world, these expressions of our sinful nature often forge an identity that leaves us so often feeling ashamed, humiliated, guilty, and condemned. I know that many of you still have sin hanging over your heads. You feel the guilt and shame of it. You live in the guilt and shame of it. You feel like you can never break free from it no matter how much you try to mask it or cover it up or pretend like it never happened. It weighs so heavy on your heart and on your soul. You think about it, often it has defined who you are, at least in your own heart and mind. But the cross deals with your sinful identity. And such were some of you, defined by these things, yes, at one point, but no longer because of the cross of Jesus Christ. What is true of you now does not have to define you forever, the gospel says. Jesus hangs on the cross and he takes the guilt and shame of all our sin. The crucifixion truly is one of the most horrendously humiliating and shameful forms of death ever invented. Even in the Roman world, it was seen as utterly despicable. It was a mockery. A Roman citizen was not even allowed to be crucified. That's how poorly they thought of it. That's how disgusting it was to them. But I want you to see that Jesus Christ was willing to suffer not just death, but death by crucifixion because God wanted to demonstrate the profound and deep love he has for us by allowing his son to paint the picture of how humiliating and shameful our sin truly is, how awful and disgusting it really is, and how he was willing to take all of that humiliation and shame and disgust and throw it all on himself for you. That is love. All of that to change our identity. And such were some of you. I was once dominated by the power of sin. I was once defined by the perversion of sin. And lastly, I was once damned by the penalty of sin. It's not just that sin is shameful and humiliating. It's that it has drastic consequences, both short and long term. Paul comes back to the concept of the kingdom of God. He kind of brackets this section here. He begins by saying, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the end of verse 10, he says, none of these, all these people on this list, all these people defined by the perversion of sin will inherit the kingdom of God. 
To some, maybe even in this room, you say, fine. That's, that's okay, that's no big deal. So I, I won't inherit the kingdom of God. Big deal. But what you miss is that it's not that you don't inherit the kingdom of God alone. Listen, it's that you will inherit something else in its place. It's not that you simply just to go on and, you know, kind of float into nothingness as if your life here and now doesn't matter or there is no consequences for how you chose to live your life and who you choose to submit your life to. In fact, the implication here is that you will inherit something else. That is the weight that Paul is placing on them. He uses the positive of not inheriting the kingdom of God, but in their minds, instantly they knew what that meant. It's not that they wouldn't just inherit the the blessings of God for all of eternity. They would inherit something radically different, something radically devastating, something truly horrendous. Jesus, in speaking of the kingdom of God, in the context of entering into the kingdom of God or not, speaks so pointedly in some parables in Matthew chapter 25. And I won't read you the parables, but listen to what he says as he closes off this chapter on the kingdom of God and what it means to enter the kingdom of God. He says this, and these, those whose behavior reflects a genuine salvation and trust in Jesus Christ, these will go away into, or those who have not exemplified that, will go into eternal punishment but the righteous will inherit eternal life. You see, he's saying the same thing. He's just showing both sides of the coin. The righteous will inherit the kingdom of God, those who are made righteous by Jesus Christ alone, and those who are unrighteous, they'll inherit eternal punishment. You know, as... Parents, I'm sure most parents can relate to this, we like to give our kids um, the consequences of their rebellion up front. We like to tell them exactly what they're choosing if they choose to rebel. We want them to know if this is the decision you make, this is exactly what's going to happen. In other words, we don't want them to be surprised or caught off guard by what's coming their way. One of the phrases we use in our home, we use in this church often too, is if you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. But we use this as well. Listen, we love to show the the positive. If you choose obedience, you're choosing blessing. Do you know God, as a gracious Father, is so good to give us up front the consequences of our rebellion. In advance, he says, listen, I want you to choose who you will submit your life to, and I want you to choose me, and I want you to know that if you do, this is what you will inherit. These blessings are for you if you choose to submit your life to me, but if you choose not to, God is so kind to say, this is the consequences of your rejection and rebellion. This is what you are willing embracing by rejecting me. He wants us to be clear on what we're choosing. Now all of us without Jesus are damned by the penalty of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us in our sinfulness and our human nature stands before God condemned by our sin and what we deserve from God is the penalty for our sin because God is so just. We all chose in our rebellion of God, even if we didn't knowingly do so, listen, we all chose the penalty of our sin. 
But at the cross, we see something so radically life-changing. Jesus hangs to take upon himself our guilt and our shame, but he takes also our condemnation. He takes our penalty as he hangs as well. The true horror of the cross and the crucifixion is not the physical horror. The physical horror of the cross paints a picture that our minds can't truly comprehend. It is a physical description of the spiritual horror that was so much greater than the physical. It went dark for three hours as Jesus hung on the cross. In the middle of the day, And in that darkness, God unleashed his wrath and fury upon his own son. So much so that Jesus in his humanity cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that is what eternity without God feels like. Listen, listen, that statement tells us something so profound about what the kingdom of God is. The joy of the kingdom of God is not being God forsaken. It is being continually, eternally, forever in the presence of the God where the fullness of joy and life and satisfaction for our souls is found. But you see, the opposite is true in inheriting eternal punishment. It is God-forsakenness. It is existence for all eternity away from the presence of God. That soul-satisfying longing that only God can give will be the experience of all those who live in eternal punishment. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we might be accepted by God. And with his final breath, Jesus declared, it is finished. He was damned by the penalty of sin in our place. He absorbed the full weight of God's fury that you and I deserve, an eternal payment made for eternal consequences. And can you just hear the words of Paul ringing loudly in your ears, and such were some of you. And such were some of you under the weight and wrath of God, the penalty for your sin looming over your head, your eternity in absolute jeopardy. But what is true, listen, of you now does not have to damn you forever. The cross has come to put an end to the dominating power of sin, to the defining perversion of sin and the damning penalty of sin. On the cross, God made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For some of you today, he offers hope. Because it's not, I once was right now for you, it's, I currently am. But what's true of you now does not have to be true of you anymore. This morning you can say, with a heart full of gratitude, I once was. All those things that are true of you now don't have to be true of you right this very second. You can turn to Jesus. You can look to Christ and you can see the one who was crucified in your place. You can repent of your sins and trust in him. You can have life and you can be among those who will inherit the kingdom of God. See him in your place. See him defeating the power of sin. See him destroying the perversion of sin. See him damning the penalty of sin. See him doing it all for you. An act of love. 
Some of you, you're living like the Corinthians. You are a follower of Christ, but you have been living like you're not. You look at the cross and it's not making much difference in your life and today is the day maybe God is calling you back to turn back once again, to turn in repentance and faith, to look at the cross and be reminded of the magnitude of the cost of your salvation and of the radically different life God has called you and empowered you to live. Some of you this morning you need to be reminded as you turn back to Jesus Christ, that's who I once was, but that is no longer who I will choose to be. And for those who are walking faithfully, coming back to this truth is never a chore. It's always a joy to come back to the Lord and say, that's who I once was, isn't it? May our hearts this morning be filled with gratitude as we reflect, as we repent and rejoice.